Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor weep, they neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you so anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are a God who provides our needs. You are a God who is with us and for us, even when storms are raging, even when things are scary or concerning, you are with us. And we have come here to hear from you. So we pray that you would speak because we're here to listen. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I congratulate you on coming out this weekend. You had a number of good excuses. Um, of course, it's Labor Day weekend, um, but it's also, you know, the hurricane. I don't know if you've seen this. I don't know if you've heard. Um, there's a hurricane coming. It's, you know, in the ocean, coming this way. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. Um, but it's on, coming this way, so I just want to congratulate you guys on making it out this week. The, uh, the apocalypse has never looked so good. Thank you for the three people that laughed at that over here. Appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is a, a sort of interesting psalm, and I hope that it will um, be edifying to you in this, this weekend. Uh, I've been recently reading... Um, a book by Evelyn Waugh, um, Brideshed Revisited, um, probably not something you've heard of, um, but it, in it we meet a couple of peculiar characters, one of whom is a guy by the name of Rex, Rex Matram. Uh, Rex is a rising social and political star. Rex has got um, the right connections. He comes from a good family, studied at Oxford, um, has the right friends in the right places, is on his way to the top of the political ladder. Uh, eventually, he meets Julia, who he thinks will be a great addition to this resume, a perfect person to come alongside of him, be presentable at parties, say all the right things, do all the right things that will get him to the top. They marry, and things seem to be going okay for a little while until we get a little closer look at Rex. 
Rex is a kind of confusing character. One day he's a communist. The next day he's a fascist. One day he's a Catholic. The next day he's a Protestant. One day he's on the right of politics. The next day he's on the left. He changes friends whenever he sees the opportunity. He cares not at all for Julia. And uh, he only hopes that she and the children will show up on time, look pretty, say the right things, and make him respectable among society. And he doesn't really care what happens after that. And what we begin to see about Rex is that his whole life is about achievement, power and prestige, success, no matter the cost. About midway through the book, Julia has this remarkable insight. She says this. She says, you know, our priest hit on the truth about Rex at once, that it took me a year of marriage to see. He simply wasn't all there He wasn't a complete human being at all. He was a tiny bit of one, unnaturally developed, something in a bottle, an organ kept alive in a laboratory. I thought he was a sort of primitive savage, but he was something absolutely modern and up-to-date that only this ghastly age could produce. A tiny bit of man pretending he was whole. Tiny bit of a man pretending that he was whole. Now, what we see is that the tragedy of Rex, the tragedy of his character, is that as you go through the book and you start to peel back the layers of Rex, past his agenda, past his um, success, past his political ambitions, once you start to peel back the layers, you realize there's nothing there. There's no person. There's no core. There's just ambition. There's just success. And what happens is when your whole life is built on ambition and success, the human self simply can't support that, and it collapses. And you end up a tiny bit of a person pretending that you're whole. And the church has always known that if you want to be a whole person, if you want to have something that you can build your life on that makes you a complete person, you've got to build your life on God. Augustine said it this way, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And this is where this psalm meets us. This psalm meets us and gives us the experience of someone who's been on the other side, who's tried to build their life on many things, and now is coming to us and testifying to the only thing that you can build your life on. So he gives us two things to do and one thing to proclaim. Two kind of things to do, one thing to proclaim. We look in verse 1. The first thing we see is we can't find our significance in things. Can't find our significance in things. We begin, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My heart is not lifted up. I have not put myself um, in the place of God. What's going on there is my heart is not lifted up. In Hebrew, um, kind of their way of thinking about things, uh, it is that the seat of the person, the kind of human being, is in the heart. You and I sort of think of it as like the mind or the brain. Um, or maybe the ego, if you want to get real fancy. Um, But that's kind of where you and I kind of think of the person as being. For um, the ancient Israelites, they thought of the heart. And that's kind of the seat of the person. That's where the core of a person is. And so when the psalmist says, I have not lifted up my heart, my heart is not lifted up, I have not exalted, I have not glorified myself. I haven't put myself in the place where God is supposed to be. What the psalmist knows, the voice of experience, is that when you put yourself in the place of God, you'll always be disappointed. You'll never live up to your own expectations. You'll never really get what you're hoping for. So he says, I have not exalted myself 
because that won't work. The next thing he says is, my eyes are not raised too high. Sort of a similar thing going on here. My eyes are not raised too high. My eyes are not exalted. What I see, I don't exalt what I see. I'm not, in, I'm not glorifying what's around me. Most Americans, if you ask them, um, will tell you that if they just made 10% more a year, they would be financially secure. It's actually quite a remarkable phenomenon. No matter where you are on the socioeconomic spectrum, whether you are in the, below the poverty line or in the top percentiles, every person, no matter what, you say, what, you know, what would it take for you to be secure? They say, if I just had 10% more. What's interesting about that is there are people who have 10% more, and those people are not financially secure. Um, they put their hope in that 10%, and then the 10% comes. They get the corner office, they get the office on the next floor up, and then what happens? They start thinking about the next 10%. Start thinking about the office on the next floor up. They start thinking about the office with an entryway. I don't know much about offices, that's about the limit of my office knowledge. Uh, <laughs> work in college ministry. Uh, but they start looking. You say, you know, if I only had that extra addition on the house, you know, then, then the in-laws could stay there, and that would be perfect. And then the kids could have their playroom, and then things would be good. If only I got that boat, man, then I would be happy. If only I got that 10%, then I could send my kids to that school instead of this school, and then things would be okay. If only I got that 10%, then things would be better. And the psalmist says we can't be exalting what we see. We can't put our trust in those things because, as many of you know, you'll get the next 10% and it won't work. You'll be looking at the next. So he eliminates the self and he eliminates the things around us. And finally he says, I do, not, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Literally what's going on here says, I do not walk and things too great or too marvelous for me. Meaning he's not glorifying circumstance, not exalting moment. As you know, if your emotions and your life is built on whether or not things are going well for you, that is not normally gonna be a key to stable emotional life. Um, there could be a hurricane, hypothetically, um, that might come and might throw your life into a bit of disarray. You could lose a job, you could lose a position, you could have conflicts in a marriage, conflicts with kids, conflicts with friends, all of these different types of things. And if you try to build your life on extraordinary circumstances, those things will never work. Now, the psalmist says we just trust that God is with us in the ordinary, as we walk through the ordinary things of life, that God is with us and for us. So the psalmist has eliminated glorifying self. He's eliminated glorifying things, and he's eliminated glorifying circumstances. What's left? He has an interesting next line, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Now, if I think if you went to the average person and you started to just show them like, hey, you know, if you really look at your life, um, you're probably not living up, I know this is true for me, I'm not always living up to the expectations that I set for myself. Okay, so, you know, if I put my hope in myself, that's going to be a, a kind of a failure. And like, you know, um, your stuff, you know, it's going to rot eventually. and It's not going to be very good. And, you know, you, it's not really a secure place. 
And then if you go to them and say, and by the way, you know, circumstances, they change up and down. What normally happens in that moment is what's called a midlife crisis. Um, you know, you experience this sort of tumult of the fact that all the things that you have been building your life around aren't actually giving you any satisfaction. And this is what we normally refer to as the midlife crisis. It comes earlier um, for some of us than it does for others. Um, but the psalmist here has the exact opposite reaction. The psalmist here says, I've eliminated all those things, and that means, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. I've calmed and quieted my soul. How does the psalmist find calm and quiet when he's eliminated all these other things? And he says, I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. This is the second thing that he calls us to do. Um, I don't know if you've read this verse. This probably wasn't in your Bible memory verses in Sunday school, like a weaned child with its mother. This is probably not one that you memorized when you were younger, um, not one that's on your refrigerator at home or that you have as a background on your phone, like a weaned child with its mother. That's probably not the one that you were going for. Um, but I think there's something quite beautiful here. Many of us, we come to God like Rex. We come to God hoping to get something from God. It's interesting that he uses the weaned child, not just a child. So an unweaned child, a child that's still nursing, is a child that's, you know, they're kind of restless. Um, they're always sort of incontent sometimes. They're kind of clinging to mom, hoping to get something from mom, hoping to nurse. They're, they're kind of clawing and grabbing and scratching and going for that. And the psalmist says, no, I'm like a weaned child. A weaned child means I'm not coming to God for what he can give me. I'm not coming to God to add him to just another list of things of my accomplishments. I'm not coming just so I can build my kingdom. I'm coming to God for who he is. I'm coming to God to rest in him. I'm coming to God to hear from him. Uh, as many of you know and may have seen running around the sanctuary earlier this morning, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old um, son who is quite adorable, uh, Winston. Uh, and Winston, uh, you know, he's full of energy, but he's not very good at planning his day. Um, I don't know if you've experienced this with two-and-a-half-year-olds. We've talked about it a few times, but he's just not good at time management. Um, you know, a little concerned. Some of you are laughing. Some of you aren't. It's a joke. Um, some of you are like, we're calling DCF. Um, uh, but he's not, he's not great. Um, you know, and we like to have kind of action-packed days. And so we'll kind of leave the house between 8 and 9, kind of be doing stuff. Nap time is about 1.30, 1, 1.30. Um, and about 11.30 noon, we kind of have exhausted all of our energy, and we're kind of on the downward slope. And the way that I know we're on the downward slope is that any time we've got to do any physical exertion at all, my son turns to me and says, Daddy, carry you. Carry you. Um, he's got his pronouns confused because I will say, Winston, do you want me to carry you? And he thinks carry you is just the phrase. So he's taken that. We're working on it. But his pronouns are confused. What he means is, Daddy, carry me. Can't go any further. I'm not going to make it to the car. I'm not going to make it the rest of the way. I'm not going to make it to our next event. I'm not going to make it home if you don't carry me. My feet are hurting. I'm tired, and it's hot. And he knows that if Daddy carries him, we're going to make it. 
we're going to get there. And like a toddler, like a small child, when we come to the end of our resources, when we go through all the list of things we could build our lives on, we come to the end and we see that we need something more. We need security in things that don't perish. We need safety in one who cares. And we need to be picked up and carried the rest of the way. It's in that, it's in that most dependent of relationships. It's in that, that being picked up, resting on a shoulder. The beautiful thing about when I carry my son is I can rest on my shoulder and I can talk to him when no one else can hear. And so we can walk and I can say, Winston, daddy loves you. Daddy's proud of you. I'm with you. I love you. I love carrying you. I love being with you. And it's just this very intimate conversation between just us. And the psalmist says, that's where I find my meaning and significance. That's where I find a core identity is sitting in the arms of the father, sitting in the arms of the parent who loves me, who can whisper to me and say, I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm for you. We're going to make it. I'm going to carry you. Rest. And in that place, it's in that place that you can find a core identity that no matter what happens, no matter the circumstances, no matter the size of your house, the car that you drive, the school that you go to, no matter how many times you fail to meet your own expectations, you can find rest and an identity. The, the hymn writer has it right. And they say, no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hands. And so... This psalm is a psalm of comfort, and it's a psalm that calls us to look into ourselves, peel back the layers, and say, what is my life all about? What is my fundamental core identity? Find it in God, because he is with you and he's for you. But the psalm doesn't end there. It doesn't just end as a call to personal piety and personal reflection. He goes on in verse 3, as from this personal first-person prayer from my, he turns to the congregation, he turns to the nation, O Israel, hope in the Lord forevermore. Having found that place of rest, having found that place of security, having found that comfort and that core identity, we go into the world. We go into a place where people are being crushed under the weight of their own expectations, and we say there is a place of rest for you, and it's a place of admitting that you can't. This is the crazy, wonderful, upside-down world of the gospel, is that in the gospel, the place of safety and security is admitting weakness. And when we go out into the world, we say it's not through power and prestige, it's not through building your kingdom, because that will lead you to being a tiny bit of a person. But it's in the arms of your father. It's in that weakness that you will find wholeness. I think this puts a whole new spin on evangelism. Uh, when we go into the world, we're not just encountering people um, who have wrong ideas about God. They do. That is true. Um, they're not just people who are um, dealing with different emotional issues, who have different circumstances that are, are difficult or things. They do have those things, but that's not all that's going on. When you build your life on these other things, you're a tiny bit of a person pretending to be whole. And we can come and say, the wholeness that you're looking for, 
that security, that steadfastness that you're looking for, that is found in your Father, and that is good news, that in Jesus Christ, God is with you, and he's for you, and he wants only for you to turn and say, Daddy, carry me. Daddy, carry me. Would you do that, and would you go and proclaim that? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are a Father who loves us. You are a Father who cares for us, And you are a father who longs to carry us, who longs to tell us that you love us and that you care for us and to give us safety and security in the midst of life's troubles. Pray that you would seal that truth to our hearts now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.